the past few weeks we have been in the book of John. We're going to be in the book of John uh, for a, a while longer as we go through it. And the gospel of John is a beautiful gospel, isn't it? It's, it's so different from the other three. John paints just such an incredible picture of everything that Jesus does and the way he interacts with people. And John has a different perspective because oftentimes as you read through the book of John, you'll see a part where it says, and the disciple Jesus loved, and that was John. That's where he's writing for himself in there. Um, notice he didn't say the disciple with the most humility um, when he said that. He was the disciple Jesus loved, not the one with the most humility. Uh, we also know that because later when John and Peter are running to the empty tomb, uh, we notice that John makes an effort to note that he beat Peter um, to the empty tomb. So he says, you know, because he was younger, he made it there faster. It's kind of like, Haha, I'm faster and you're old, Peter. Just, you know, just saying, that's how he does that. Uh, no, but John's gospel is an incredible gospel. It's just packed full of, of wonderful stuff. The setting for the passage that we're in right now is Jesus has, um, he's begun calling his disciples, and he is going to call two more right here. He's going to call Philip, and he's going to call Nathaniel. And the, and the situations and the things that we can bring out from his calling of Nathaniel are really, really impressive. So we're going to be in John chapter 1, uh, verses 43 through 51. We're going to be in Judges chapter 6, verses 11 through 16, and then I have some other scriptures I'm going to share with you. But John chapter 1, 40 through 51, here's what it says. It says, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, come follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. Philip went to look for Nathanael and told him, We have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth? exclaimed Nathanael. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see for yourself, Philip replied, as they approached Jesus. As they approached, Jesus said, Now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How do you know about me? Nathanael asked. Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Jesus asked him, Do you believe just because I told you I had seen you under the fig tree? You will see greater than this. Then he said, I tell you the truth, you will see all of heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man, the one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. Now, if you want to know a little bit more about that, go back to Genesis, read the, the portion about Jacob's ladder. Um, it'll kinda, he's, he's saying that he is the ladder. He is the bridge between earth and heaven. Right there, he's giving Nathaniel a little picture of who he is. But there's a couple truths that I really want to pull out of these kind of things. It's funny because Nathaniel, the first thing he hears when he hears that Philip says, hey, listen, we found the guy, we found the Messiah, we found him, and he's from Nazareth, and Nathaniel's like, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of that town? I mean, now, if we were completely honest, we all have places and regions where we think of as less than great, Right? Now, Nazareth is in Galilee. Galilee was a little more, what's a good word for it? Hillbilly? Um, not like, hey, y'all, what y'all doing? And it wasn't like that, but it, was, it wasn't as maybe metropolitan as like where Jerusalem was. Jerusalem was the cultural and religious and social hub of everything, and Galilee was more like that. We know that they could tell the difference between the two places because later when Peter is being questioned about being one of Jesus' disciples, they said, we know you're from Galilee. We can hear it in your accent. You're a Galilean. So they obviously had some kind of social differences between them. And so he's saying, listen, can anything good come from there? Now, Nathaniel's not necessarily poo-pooing the entire area. He's from the region of Galilee, which means he's in some ways thinking there's, there's not a lot good that comes from where we are. 
That would be like if we said, hey, come see this guy who, who's, he's really great. We think he's the Messiah. He's from Lakewood, Washington. And they'd be like, can anything good come out of Lakewood, Washington? Is it known for anything besides like being featured on Cops all the time? Right? I mean, you watch like six episodes of Cops. You'll see Lakewood at least once. I promise you. Like it's three times. <laughs> Joe says three times. Like, yeah, 50%. They're here all the time. Right? Um, What's more fun is when you start to have friends in the police force and you're watching cops, you're like, I know that guy. Yeah. Um, and then you see him and you're like, I can't believe he's now a police officer. I would have thought he would have been on the other side of that, you know, conversation. But, uh, no, he's, he's, he's intrigued by the region. Now, Judges chapter 6, this is, this is the, the judge Gideon. And Gideon has kind of an interesting story to set this story up. Um, there's a cycle in Judges where um, Israel stops worshiping God. They start worshiping other idols. God allows a country to come in and oppress them. When that happens, they inevitably turn and call back out on God. When they call out to him, he raises up a judge to deliver them. And this cycle just kind of takes place throughout the book of Judges. And if you're, one of, if you're a person like me, who a lot of times you read this and you think, man, they're dumb. Why don't they just do this? Think about how many times you only call out to God when something bad starts to happen in your life. Right? Everything's going good. And we're like, oh, yeah, I go to church on Sunday, raise my hand, woo-hoo, amen, all right. And then we come out and then we go, you know, all of a sudden something gets bad. And we're like, God! And we call out to him and suddenly our relationship with him deepens because of trouble. We're not that much different from the Israelites. Anyway, the, the people of Midian had come in and they were, they were stealing all of the grain. They were raiding so the Israelites would hide when they would thresh wheat, when they would do all this kind of stuff. And that's where we find this setting right now. It says, Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Oprah. 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 Oprah? Oprah? Huh. Oprah? I don't know. Anyway. Which belonged to Joash, the clan of Abizer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of the wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites? Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. Then the Lord said to him, I will be with you and will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. So there's two truths that we can pull out of these scriptures, out of these passages of scripture. And the first one is this, your value to God is not determined by your social position. Whatever your social position is, whatever the, the area is that you come from, your, your status in life, it's not based on anything else. Nathaniel questioned the, revel, the relevance of Jesus based on the region that he came from. He said, look, can anything good come from Nazareth? It's, it's a nothing town in a nothing area. Why would anything good come out of there? Don't you know all the best and brightest minds come out of Jerusalem? Let's be honest, if we have to go to the doctor, if we have to go see a specialist, we are a lot more excited if we see Yale, Harvard, Johns Hopkins, something like that on there than if, you know, if we were to see, like, you know, Tacoma Community College, which they don't actually have medical degrees, but you know what I'm saying. Washington State University. I'd be like, I don't, you know, is there a doctor here that even went to UW because, um, you know... 
he's questioning the region. He's questioning where he's from. He's saying, listen, this it's not about where you hail from. It doesn't matter if where you come from is, you know, this beautiful street of dreams, upscale life, or if you came from abject poverty. God's not impressed by where you come from. God's not impressed. God's not impressed by what social class you hail from. Gideon questions God based on his social position within his own family. And it, where his family sits at, he says, listen, God, my clan is the weakest in all of Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. My family, my family is nothing, and I'm the, I'm the nothing of the nothings. I'm a loser. God, why, why me? God, God, why, why me? Why, why are you picking me? I, I'm a nobody, God. And so many times we feel like that, don't we? We look at things and we feel like because we come from nowhere, because we have no grand history, maybe we didn't come from a family that had everything. We came from nothing. There's no way God could ever want to use me because I don't look, sound, act, or think, or, or, or am like so-and-so. I don't fit that, I don't fit that mold, I don't fit that bill, I don't fit any of that. And yet here's Jesus, the Messiah, who hails from the place that's not the cultural hub. He's from somewhere outside of there. It's a human viewpoint to place value on people because of the factors of their life. And the Bible condemns discrimination. It's a big word, it's a word we hear a lot especially now in the news. We hear talk of discrimination and things of that nature. The Bible condemns discrimination. Condemns it. I somehow am missing a part of my notes here, but that's all right. So the scripture you have is James 2, 1 through 13. And to summarize this for you, what it talks about is it says, listen, if somebody comes into your church and they are dressed in, in rags, and they, they look poor. They Obviously, you can tell by looking at them, they don't have a lot of money. And you sit them somewhere that's not a good seat. It's not a good place to be. And a rich person comes in in nice clothes and fancy jewelry, and you give them a good seat and a good spot. He goes, haven't you shown judgment? It's sinful. It's sinful to make a snap judgment of someone based on their appearance. It is sinful to, to treat someone as different because the class that they come from is different than you. So if you're somebody who doesn't have a ton of money, it is sinful for you to judge somebody who does have more. And vice versa. If you're somebody who has a lot more money, it is sinful for you to judge someone who maybe doesn't have as much as you. I'm not getting into, well, if they're lazy and they're not working, that's, I'm not here to have that debate with you. What I'm saying is, especially when people walk through the doors of our church, it doesn't matter if they're homeless or if they own half of Lakewood, their value to God is the same. Your value is not determined by your social status. God places value on the person not their station. Now, if you're asking, if you're younger and you say, what is a person's station? It means it's their social class. It's where they fit in life. I learned that word from one of my favorite movies, The Greatest Showman, because he's constantly talking about wanting to elevate his station because he was born in abject poverty and obviously raises himself up to, 
to have a have a ton of money. So and they talk about him changing his stars or changing his station, all that kind of stuff. God is not the value God places on you is not based on how much money is in your bank account, on what kind of car you drive, on how big your house is, how many stocks you have. God's not impressed by your 401k. That's not who he is. Colossians chapter 3 says this. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what you did, as long as you love him. And there's like nobody my age in here because nobody got that. That was, it sounded really good. It was the Backstreet Boys. Um, I paraphrased a little at the end. But it's funny because I was thinking about ever since I wrote this sermon, this song time I'm playing through my head and I went and looked it up and the whole song is literally a guy singing a love song to a girl where he's saying, it doesn't matter who you are. You could be on the run. It doesn't matter what you've done. As long as you love me, I'm there for you. And I thought, man, is, that's a pretty good picture of who Jesus is. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from. It doesn't matter what life you've come from. It doesn't matter what your past looks like. It doesn't matter if you don't have the pedigree. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you love God, that you have faith. That's what matters to God. Anybody who's really involved in in things with animals and stuff like that, you know that breeding is important right? And when you go, I have a nine-year-old German shepherd, and when we went and got her, I got the whole, like, long list back, right, of, you know, this is her father, and this was her mother, and this is who, and this is who, and this is who, and this is who, and And it's like, this is her pedigree. This is what means that she's, you know, like, supposed to be a really good dog, which she is, for the most part. Um, She's a shepherd, And it's funny because so many people are into this whole purebred idea. Like, I, oh, I want this purebred, you know, whatever, whatever kind of dog you love. And truthfully, I don't know why, mixed breed dogs tend to be better every time. Amen. <laughs> they really do. They seem to get all of the benefits of the breeds without a lot of the problems that are inherent in the breed. It's, I don't know, it's probably God's way of making nature work the right way. They have better temperaments, usually. I say that all three of the dogs that we own are purebreds. Um, one of them is a, turning into a little terror. Um, well, little terror. He's almost 100 pounds and like six feet tall standing up. So not little terror. He's turning into a terror. Um, but uh, pedigree is important with dogs, right? When you, if you've ever watched like the, the dog show, which I never did until I, I, um, I married Jennifer and her family. That was like their big Thanksgiving thing was they watched the dog show together and you always, you know, and you watch the little dogs run around and they're all, you know, and it's really funny to watch these people run these tiny little dogs. Like, it's not even really a dog. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm probably going to offend someone. My email address is in the app. You can send me an email and tell me why I'm wrong later. But sometimes it's just a rat with really long fur. I'm just saying, okay? It's just, you know, and here they are and they're just... And this little dog's like, just trying to keep up with a person basically walking the dog, right? But the pedigree to them is important. They judge the dog based on what? On its lineage, 
on how it looks, on how it presents itself, on how pretty it is. And we've adopted that in culture, haven't we? We judge people based on their heritage, based on how well they present themselves, how good they look, how pretty they are. And man, that's crept into the church too, hasn't it? Thank God Abundant Life doesn't have quite the same standards. I wouldn't be allowed on stage. Um, I'm not that good looking. You notice Jennifer wears glasses. She didn't start wearing those until after we were married, praise God. Might not have been married. No, she did wear them a little before. But her eyes, I'm just telling you guys right now, the reason that I, I think I got her was because I don't think she really realized what I looked like for a long time until she was kind of stuck. Cause, and I know this because one of our first, it wasn't even really a date. We were just hanging out as friends. We went walking. She's shaking her head at me. It's okay. Uh, I'll apologize later. Um, we were walking, and she didn't wear her glasses because she was, you know, really, or she didn't even wear glasses then. She thought, she's like, I look silly in them. I don't want to wear them. And so she hadn't put her contacts in. And so we're walking, and we're walking around Bradley Lake Park. And it's this beautiful park out in Puyallup, and we're walking, and um, we're not dating, so there's no holding hands or anything. We're just kind of getting to know each other, and it's really—it's already kind of awkward, right? And everybody's trying to, trying to do that thing, make ourselves look really good. And all of a sudden, she looks over at me and she goes, "Oh, would you look at that cute little rabbit over there?" I don't say anything. I just kind of keep walking. And so I don't know if she thought I didn't hear or what. And she's like, "You see that? Isn't that rabbit so cute?" And I'm like, I just keep walking. And she's like, "No, look! Isn't that just the cutest little rabbit?" And I'm like. Uh, and she looks at me, she goes, that's not a rabbit, is it? I was like, no, that's a rock. Um, so, so now if you understand why she didn't start wearing stuff till she, you know, till she was like, you want to marry me? Yes. All right, you can get glasses now. Oh, look, you're stuck. You said yes. No, but we judge people in our culture based on how they look, based on how they talk, based on how they dress, based on all of these factors. God doesn't do that. And because God doesn't do that, neither should we. Discrimination within the church shouldn't be a thing, but it is. Sometimes churches will place a higher value on somebody who can give more in the offering than somebody who can't. Just because you're somebody who has a fluency in your life does not give you any more value in the church than anyone else. The color of your skin does not determine your value to God. Amen. Which is good because you know what? If it did, all the white people would be out too. Because Jesus was Jewish. Just saying. So... God is impressed with our faith. When Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman officer pleaded with him, Lord, my young servant lies in bed paralyzed in terrible pain. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. But the officer said, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are and my servant will be healed. I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers and I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say, go, and they go, or come, and they come. And if I say to my slaves, do this, they do it. 
when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to those who were following him, he said, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. And I tell you this, that many Gentiles will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and feast in the kingdom of heaven. But many Israelites, for those whom the kingdom was prepared, will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the Roman officer, go back home because you believed. And it has happened. And the young servant was healed that same hour. Now listen, this guy's faith impressed Jesus. Why? Because he said, listen, you don't even have to come. Now the reason he necessarily didn't want Jesus to come is he understood Jewish tradition and understood how bad it would actually be for Jesus if he went in there. Jews were not supposed to do that. They were not supposed to, you know, go in. You want to talk about people, they were incredibly elitist. I mean, if you think racism doesn't exist in the Bible, you haven't read it right. The Jews were incredibly racist. That's why they treated the Samaritans so horribly. It's part of the reason why in Colossians, Paul makes sure to say, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you have the pedigree or not. What impresses God? Your faith impresses God. Hebrews 11.6 says this, and it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. You want to impress God? Then have faith. Believe in him. Trust in him. Follow him with faith. It was something my parents used to tell me all the time growing up, Josh, you're not going to get to heaven on our faith. It's going to be on yours. It's the same thing Jennifer and I try to teach our kids all the time. Listen, if you don't put your faith in God, it won't matter when you die. And you go stand before him and be like, well, my dad was a pastor. And he's going to be like, that's great for your dad. What about you? Your actions, what you're capable of doing don't matter either. That's why it says, listen, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do all of these things in your name? And he says, yeah, but I don't know who you are. I don't know you. You didn't have faith, you had money. You didn't have faith, you had position. You didn't have faith, you had prestige. There's a difference. Faith isn't predicated on your social position. It's based on you. Your choice. Your belief. Who you are. What you choose to do. Do you choose to trust God when it doesn't even seem like it makes sense to do so? The second truth about all this is, is that God knows you and your talents. God knows you and your talents. Notice, when he sees Nathaniel, what does he say? Here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of integrity. He knows him. Now, understand this, Nathaniel's never actually met Jesus up until this point. This is their first introduction, and Jesus says, this is a man of integrity. This is a man a genuine son of Israel, somebody who has followed God's law then, right? If he's a genuine son, it means he has followed God's law and followed it right. And he's a man of integrity. And Nathaniel shocked. He says, how do, you, how do you know me? How do you know me? How do you know me like that? And Jesus goes, you're impressed by, by that? Let me tell you what else you'll see. This is somewhat hypothetical and that scholars aren't actually able to tell this whether or not um, there is some belief that Nathaniel might also be Bartholomew from the Synoptic Gospels um, because John never mentions Bartholomew and the Synoptics never mention Nathaniel and we see Bartholomew somewhat paired with Philip in the Synoptic Gospels so some people have made the assumption that they might be the same person. 
if they are, then I'm going to tell you him being a man of integrity was a good thing, but it led him to some very bad places. If you read the history of Bartholomew, it did not end well for Bartholomew. Talking to me about a man who was beaten, skinned alive, crucified upside down. I mean, Bartholomew did not have a good end to him. So if Nathaniel is Bartholomew, it would make sense that a man of integrity would not yield ever his position on Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that. My integrity will carry it out now for the rest of my life. That's who he is. That's an impressive standing that Jesus knew him that well. Also, we notice that in Judges, the angel calls Gideon by what he's capable of, not by who he is in that moment. God sees who Gideon can be, not who he is. Because notice what he say. Greetings, mighty hero. Mighty hero. The dude's hiding. He's hiding so people don't come. The next thing he does when he tears down the altar of Baal and all this kind of stuff, he does it at night so people can't see him. If you read the story of Gideon, every time I read it, I'm like, this guy doesn't seem like a mighty man. He makes God tell him like five times. Lord, if I'm really supposed to go do this, I want the, I want the, the fleece to be dry and the ground to be wet. Okay, you did that. Okay, God, if you really want me to do this, I want the fleece to be wet and the ground to be dry. I mean, the guy doesn't strike me as a mighty man of valor. But God knows what he's capable of. God knows what he can be. And so many times I think God speaks those things to us and we give God every reason in the world why we can't. God's calling Moses out in the desert. You're going to do this. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to go. Moses, I I can't talk right, God. God, I, I stutter. God's, I, don't, I don't care about your limitations. Because I'm going to tell you this too. God doesn't see who you are capable of being on your own. He sees who you are capable of being with his power, with his help, with him going with you. And if God be for us, then who can be against us, right? We know God has called us to be so many times and we reject it we push away because again we're human and we take that human viewpoint and we're like but I don't have all these things God I don't care about those things the disciples did the same thing Jesus is redeeming Peter and he says you're going to go and you're going to do all this stuff and he looks he says well what about John (laughs) Jesus says what about John if I want him to live till the, I return, what is that to you? He says, you do what I called you to do. You worry about what God has called you to do. God made you. He knows the giftings you have. He knows what you're capable of doing. He knows the plans that he has for you. Jeremiah 1, 4 through 6, says this. The Lord gave me this message. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. Now, obviously God is speaking to Jeremiah in this moment, but the idea, because remember, God is no respecter of persons, right? That he knew Jeremiah before, while he was being formed in his mother's womb. That means he knew you too. Before you were born, God knew you. He knew the plans that he had for you. Psalms 139, 13 through 16 says this, You made all my delicate inner inner parts of my body. You knit me together in my mother's womb. 
Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born, and every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. What does that mean? It means that God knew him before he was born. He, plan- he made plans for him before he was born. He knew what the, the writer of this, he knew what David was going to be capable of. He knew who he was. Just like he knows you. He knows what you are capable of. He knows who he's called you to be. All you have to do is say, you know what? It doesn't matter where I hailed from. It doesn't matter what the world would tell me I'm worth. What matters is I have faith in God. And God, I'm believing in you to work your talents out in my life. To minister to me, to work through me. God, help me to show other people their value isn't what the world tells you them their value is. Because the world is full of people who don't think they have any value. Full of young men who think because they don't look like a superhero, can't run like a professional athlete, can't, can't hit a ball, can't shoot a hoop, that their value is less than full of young girls who think the only value they have is in their body, in the way they look. Or even for some girls who feel like they don't have that. That's not where their value is found. Their value is found in Jesus. You are worth more than a dollar sign. It doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. You are special to God, and he has an amazing plan for your life. God loves you so much. And he wants to do great things through you. I'll tell you one other place where the Bible doesn't discriminate. It doesn't discriminate on age. God never tells anyone that they're too old to be effective for him. He never tells anyone that they're too young to be effective for him. God has a plan for you guys. He has a plan for this church. He has things that he wants us to do. He has things that he wants us to accomplish. We have a mission. And he picked you. Picked me. So the question then is, what are you going to do with that this morning? Are you going to continue to live and maybe go down the idea of, I don't have worth because of X, Y, and Z? Or are you going to say, my value is found in God? and what I can do for him. My value is in my faith. Because the Bible says that there will come a moment when all of our deeds are thrown into a fire and they'll they'll either burn like wood, hay, and stubble and we understand fire right now, don't we? 
or they'll come out as precious jewels and gold. Those are the works of faith, the things we did when we trusted God. It says some people are going to enter heaven by the skin of their teeth still smelling like smoke. It means when their entire life was put in the fire, they did nothing of value in their life. Maybe this is somebody who accepted Christ on their deathbed, or maybe it's somebody who accepted God and then never did anything else with it. Man, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to stand before Jesus one day and him saying, I gave you all these opportunities. And look, they all burned up. I don't want to enter heaven smelling like smoke. Maybe you're someone today who you say, you know what? I need to repent. Because in some way, I have judged people unfairly. I've made a snap judgment about people. I've treated someone poorly based on whatever. The most common one we think of is based on the color of their skin, but there is way more ways you can discriminate. Remember, the Bible condemns that action. But God forgives us. He changes our hearts. He changes what we think. He can help us to love people the way we need to love people. I'm going to tell you something. Nobody, nobody is above discrimination. There are times I have to check myself, or better yet, I have to be checked by my wife when she's like, Josh, that's not okay. And it's not, a, you know, a race thing, but it can be something else where I'm like, I don't, you know, what is, you know, and then I'm there I am judging. I can be guilty of wanting to talk to the person in nice clothes versus the person in ratty clothes. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. Maybe you're somebody you know that God has a plan for you. You just need to know what it is. Maybe you're somebody you know what it is and you need to ask God forgiveness for not doing it and his help to start doing it. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to ask God to show you that you're not obsolete. And he's not done using you. Because you know when God's done using you? When he brings you home. So if you're still here, he's not done. 